Well, it is so awesome to be here together as we continue to look at Jesus's words to his churches and and ultimately Jesus's words to our church today. And so as you remain standing in honor of the word of God, I'm going to read for you just the first verse from this next church. This is the church of Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Listen now to God's word. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, let's stop right there. Go ahead, just have a seat right now. And uh, as you have a seat, I want us to get this image in our mind because with every one of these churches, Jesus begins by describing something about himself and then he speaks to what the churches are getting right and then what the churches need to correct. And, and this begins with Jesus talking about being the one with the, the sharp two-edged sword. Not really the, uh, the typical image that you might have in your mind when you think about Jesus, but, but we're going to return to that. Now, I want to start by setting things up for you by uh, really asking you to think about what, what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Everyone is aware that, that Russia has invaded Ukraine. There is a war happening. There are news images that fill our television screen all the time. But I want you to remember back right at the very beginning when Russia began to invade, you might have heard that the Ukraine, they actually, they gave an order so that all of the men of fighting age, they were, they were prohibited from leaving the country. You guys remember hearing about that? Said if you're a, a man of fighting age, you cannot leave the country. But, but I don't know if you heard what happened after that. Uh, the last I checked, there have been 66,000 Ukrainian men who have returned to Ukraine. They have been studying abroad, they've been working abroad, who knows where life has taken them, but they have seen their country being invaded, and they have, instead of playing it safe, instead of remaining wherever they were, they've packed it up and they went home. They have answered the call to come to battle. They have answered the call to fight. They have come to fight for their families, fight for their homes, fight for their country, ultimately fight for their freedom. They have answered the call to battle. Now, I want to turn a corner because today we're going to look at a text that I think relates very clearly not to come to battle in an earthly fashion with weapons of modern warfare, but I think that we're going to see a call that has been placed upon us, his church, those who are in Christ, a call to battle. What we're going to see as we look, beginning in verse 12, is that Christ calls his church to battle for truth. He calls you and I, those who have trusted in Jesus, he calls us not to play it safe, not to sit on the sidelines, not to sit on our hands, but to battle for truth. It makes me wonder, how many of us, how many of us are, are giving up ground in the battle for truth? When we hear the world around us speak things that are blatantly false, but it's the, it's the most popular dogma of the day, the most popular teaching of the day, and even though it contradicts the scripture, how many of us are, are giving up ground to that? How often do we compromise or concede or surrender to the enemy when truth is what is at stake? Now, let me ask us today, how many Christians are soft targets instead of being battle-ready believers. How about you? Where do you find yourself in this, in this battle that we face, this battle for stand for what's true and to trust in God's word? Today, we're going we're gonna to answer those questions. We're going to see how Christ calls his church to battle for truth as we listen to the, the words of Jesus Christ to this church in Pergamum. Now, just like, just like we began reading Jesus describing himself, Jesus, he describes himself. He describes what is positive in this church. He describes what needs to change in this church. And then he gives them instructions in part in how to change it. And then ultimately, he gives them a vision, a compelling vision of eternity. But, but let's go all the way up to the top. If you have not opened your Bible yet, would you open it to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, the church of Pergamum. Let's begin by seeing how Jesus describes himself. In fact, what we're going to see is that Christ wields the sword in battle. Christ 
wield the sword in battle. Now, last night at service, before service, I mentioned that I, I should have brought a sword just as a prop, and I had like eight, eight to ten guys say, oh, I could have bring you a sword. I could bring you a sword. I didn't realize how many people in Valley had swords, and so I guess we're that kind of a church, and that, that's kind of cool, right? But, uh, but that said, let's look at Jesus. Verse 12, let's look at him and the sword that he wields. It begins, it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, now if, if you have not been here the previous few weeks, we, we've talked first of all about this word angel. This word angel can be translated angel as in a celestial being that, that makes you afraid when you see it. It can also be translated messenger. And so there's two kind of ideas about what is Jesus, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to an actual celestial angel or is he speaking to maybe a messenger or a leader or a representative, a human in the church? And I land on that second area. I think Jesus is actually speaking to a leader in the church. You can disagree with me. We can still get the same meaning out of the rest of this text though. So he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum, it was a capital city in Asia Minor, and this was, a, this was a classy city. This was a city where the elites would flock to. This was an erudite city. This is a city that had a famous university. In fact, it had a university that had a famous library. You think about the ancient world. In the ancient world, they had a library of, of over 200,000 volumes. I mean, talk about goals, right? I'm, I'm working on that right now. They had an incredible library. This was a city where some of the princes lived. This was a high-class city. And being that, this was a city of abundant pagan worship. Multiple shrines and multiple temples and multiple altars of sacrifice. We'll talk about that more in a minute. This is the church that Jesus is speaking to. And because of their unique situation, their unique position in life, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a letter opener. This sword is a, is a weapon for battle. This is not a sword that you put up on your mantle as a display. This is meant for waging war. This is the sword that Jesus wields. And this sword, it, it's described as two-edged, symbolically potentially to, to remind us of the different functions that the sword has. I mean, we think about a sword, and a sword really has two functions, right? It has a function that protects or that frees, that does good, or, or that helps to, to free people, but it also has a function to conquer and, and to, to rule. I think that that potentially is what's described here as we think about this sword, See, Christ, his two-edged sword, first of all, it delivers. This is a sword of deliverance. This is the sword that Jesus wields to break the bonds of those who are enslaved by their sin and that are captive to Satan himself. Christ has the sword that frees us from slavery and captivity. But let's Let's think through this theologically. Let's think through what the Bible describes when it talks about the sword that Christ wields. You might even be sitting here thinking already, what are passages that talk about a sword? What, is this, what does this imagery of a sword mean? Well, most often this is a sword which is described as the word of God. Maybe your mind went to a passage like uh, Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It says, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of a heart. You know what this describes? This describes the word of God. This says that the word of God, when it's appropriately handled, when it's correctly understood, the word of God, it is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces into the very core of a person. And it splits them right open and it reveals, it discerns what is hidden in our heart. It says, it says it demonstrates the thoughts and the intentions. It reveals your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your pursuits. The word of God, it cuts you to the very core and it shows you who you really are before the Lord. 
It's living and active. Where else does the scripture speak about the sword? If you think about Ephesians chapter 6, it speaks about the armor of God. Things like the, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Then it talks about the shield of faith. And then what is the one offensive weapon that it lists out? Chapter 6, verse 17, it says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We see Jesus wielding the sword. You know what Jesus is wielding when he wields the sword? He's wielding his word. It's his word that pierces to the very core of our being. It's the word that we wield when we are in spiritual warfare, when we're in spiritual battle. This is the word, and this is the word that delivers. Let me connect a few dots for us today. Let's connect how the word of God delivers you and I. If, if you want, turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans is a great letter with Paul giving a, just an incredible argument about how salvation works. And in chapter 10, he is going to give a clarifying statement about how salvation works. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. This is how someone is saved. Notice, it describes something internal and it describes something external. The internal is if you believe in your heart. This, this is talking about an internal belief where your confidence, where your hope is on Jesus in his death and resurrection. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the perfect sinless son of God, that he died, was buried, and resurrected, that God raised him from the dead, this is the internal but then notice the external. The external is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, we, we, I, I don't want to go into this too much, but I actually, I, I think this is, this is a specific image in the New Testament. We say confess with your heart. We say, oh, I prayed a prayer. Or we say, if you confess, I mean, confess with your heart, confess with your mouth. We say, I prayed a prayer. Or I raised my hand when the pastor was speaking, so I must have confessed, right? I actually think that Romans 10 is speaking about baptism, the original Christian confession. When you have trusted in Jesus, when you have believed in him, what you would do is as soon as possible, you would be baptized. You say, Jesus is Lord, and then you'd be dunked, and you would be identifying yourself with Christ. Now, this does not mean that you have to be baptized to be saved, but what the idea here is that if you are saved, you end up pursuing baptism. But, but here's what I want us to see. Go, go back to verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in your heart. Now, just go a few more verses. Go to verse 17. It ends up describing it a little bit more, and then it says this. So faith, or belief. In, in verse 9, it says, if you believe in your heart, or if you have faith in your heart. In verse 17, so faith, or so belief, same idea, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see how these dots connect? How is someone saved? Someone's saved by belief, but how does that belief happen? That belief happens when they hear what? When they hear the word of God, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which is wielded by Christ, the word of God, which is the sharp two-edged sword that is used to deliver as it breaks your bonds from the slavery of sin. This is what Christ says to the church of Pergamum. Because I am the one who has the two-edged sword. And that edged sword, one edge potentially is used for the liberation, for the salvation, and the deliverance of sinners in need of saving grace. But the other edge, there's another use. This is a use that we heard when we listened to Psalm 2 at the very beginning of our service. See, Christ's two-edged sword, it delivers. But secondly, Christ's two-edged sword defeats. It defeats. Listen very carefully. Those not delivered by Christ by faith will be defeated by Christ by fiat, 
When I say fiat, I mean decree. One day Christ is going to speak and all of his enemies will bow before him. One day the words that come out of Christ's mouth are going to conquer and rule all who would stand against him. Uh, turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is, is at the, we're nearing the very end of the entire Bible. And this is this moment where the nations of the world want to come and stand against Jesus as if they can conquer him, as if they can overpower him, as if they can go toe-to-toe in the ring against him. Look at the vision that John gets in the very end, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word. Of God. Think John chapter 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Those not delivered by Christ by faith will ultimately be defeated by Christ by fiat, by the word that comes out of his mouth. Listen to me very carefully. There are only two options here. There are only two eternities here. There are only two responses. Only. One response is to trust in the salvation given through Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, who died in your place and paid the price for all of your sin, who was buried and in victory was resurrected. That is option one. That option leads to your deliverance. And option two is to deny Christ. Option two is to, to be religious without trusting in Christ. Option two is to hold Jesus at arm's length and say, nah, I, I got a little bit of Jesus on the weekends, but really my life is mine and I actually don't trust him for my salvation and for my hope and for my deliverance. And listen very carefully, that is a terribly frightening option. When you see Christ wielding the two-edged sword, the sharp two-edged sword, is that an image that fills your heart with joy and relief and hope and gratitude, knowing that he has delivered you? Or is that an image that fills your soul with terror and trembling and foreboding as you know that you are dead in your sin and that your heart is rebellious toward him? This is how Christ describes himself to this church in Pergamum. He says, first, look at me. Look at me as I wield this sharp two-edged sword. And then he begins to describe them as a church. And his first words are very, very wonderful. He begins by speaking with a commendation. Look at verse 13. We see that Christ commends faithfulness amid battle. This is a church that we're going to see they are in the middle of the battle. They are in the middle of the battlefield. And Christ looks at them and he looks at the ways they're faithful. And he gives them high praise. Verse 13 says, I know you dwell. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. If you have your own Bible, I, I, I encourage you to circle those words, I know. 
Jesus is going to say this over and over again to these churches. I know, I know, I know. The idea here is he, he knows perfectly their situation. He has perfect vision into what they're experiencing. He says this about this church, and I, I think this applies to even us right now. He says, I know. It's him saying, I see what you're going through. He, he, he gives three statements here of what he knows or what he sees about this church in Pergamum. I think some of us might relate to this. First of all, he says, I, I see you. Christ sees you behind enemy lines. Where does it say that they live? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. See, Pergamum, in its wealth and in its, in its abundance, it had multiple temples and multiple altars. But one of the altars, it's the altar of Zeus Soter. This altar was constructed after what the, 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 those in that region, they believed to be the Greek gods defeated the barbarians that were trying to attack them in 421 BC, almost 300, 250 years before Jesus came. And so they built this massive altar into the cliffs. This thing is 90 feet square. It's giant. It's 20 feet high. And all along the front and the sides of it, there are sculpted depictions of these Greek gods conquering over the barbarians. And it's not just a piece of art, because this is an altar. And on this altar, there would be pagan priests 24 hours a day, seven days a week, offering sacrifices to the pagan gods. You take a look at this thing, and you know what it looks like? It looks like a throne. And Jesus says to the church, he says, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Last week we saw the church in, in Smyrna, they had to deal with the synagogue of Satan. But here, the church in Pernum, they have to deal where Satan's throne is. Where it's a, it's a central hub of satanic activity in the form of pagan sacrifice and worship. So I know, I know where you dwell. You dwell behind enemy lines. And we hear that, and, and most of us, we don't, we don't have a, a pagan throne in our life that we have to deal with, but, but, but how many of us, we are one of few Christians in our family? And our family, by all accounts, is somewhat godless. And we try to hold to, to the scripture, and we try to hold to truth, and we try to hold to the biblical values, and, and we find ourselves oftentimes alone and overwhelmed. Or what about not in our family? What about in your work? Or if you're in school, in a public place. And every day you go through those doors, you know that all the pressure is on you to not say Jesus. To not talk about what's moral. To not talk about what's right. To not bring up the things of God. But you're just supposed to keep your mouth closed and to go with the flow. Why? Because who's in power there? Well, it seems to be a central activity where Satan seems to be in power. She says, I see you. I see you living behind enemy lines. I see the cultural pressure you have. I see the rising tide of secularism. I see the difficulty you experience as you trust in me and very few around you trust in me as well. He says, I see you living behind enemy lines. But that's not all he sees. Secondly, he says to this church, he says, I see you holding fast. I see you holding fast. He says, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. He says, regardless of how much pressure is being applied to your life, whether it's peer pressure for us today or the, secular, or the, the paganistic pressure of worship in that day, he says, I see that you, you, what is the term? Hold fast. Hold fast to what? To the name of Jesus. This reminds me of last week. Andrew did a great job talking about the synagogue of Satan and relating it to our cultural time today where Generation Z, they experience a morality that it's like having a compass that's broken. So Andrew, he did a great job explaining that, you know what? We live in a world where the next generations, they're, they're growing up thinking right and wrong is really important. But the problem is their right and wrong is not built on the revealed word of God. Their right and wrong is based on the cultural winds of the day. 
Jesus, Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, I know where you live, and I see that despite all of the external pressures, you are holding fast to my name. You do not deny the faith. When the pressure is on, you don't say, you know what, Jesus is my way, and you might have your way. You, you recognize, you hold fast. This is the idea of being faithful in battle or uncompromising in your convictions for the gospel. Because I see that. And the third thing it says Jesus sees is Christ sees the price of faithfulness. He, he sees how it can be costly. You know what that cost looked like in Pergamum? He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Now, we don't have accurate historical records of Antipas. All we have are traditions or legends. The legend of Antipas, though, is that he was a faithful witness. In fact, if you look, it says, Jesus says, faithful witness, that word witness, it can be translated martyr. And the legend we have of Antipas is that he was, he was martyred for the faith. And the way he was martyred is that they built an iron bull, you know, like a male cow, bovine. They built an iron bull. They enclosed Antipas in it. They put it on an altar. They stoked under this bull with wood and they lit it on fire until Antipas was burned alive inside of this thing. It says, even when he was martyred, you did not deny my name. Even when they're killing believers around you, you held fast. Let me, let me ask us today, Valley. Could, could Christ say this to us? Could Christ say to us as a church, says, I see the pressures around you as a, in the culture. I see the difficulties. I see that lots of people are leaving Washington and fleeing for more, more religiously free areas and you remain and you're here. Could he say that you are holding fast to the name of Jesus? Regardless of the cost. How about not just to Valley as a church? What would Christ say to you? As you go to work, as you go to school, as you interact with your family or your neighborhoods, would he say that I see you holding fast to my name? See, this is incredibly high praise for this church. That they are faithful in the middle of the battle. They are holding fast. These, these words of high praise, though, are followed with a, with a very real critique. Critique. I want you to listen to Jesus' words as he continues and he points out where this church is, is watering down their doctrine. And not just watering down their doctrine, but they're beginning to, in some places in their church, deny biblical morality. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Christ, he, he condemns compromising in battle. He commends when we're faithful in battle, but he condemns compromising in battle. Verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, here, here's what we see. They have compromised in two ways. They have compromised in their doctrine and they have compromised in their devotion, their practice of the faith. And, and so I think if we take this condemnation of compromise and we turn it upside down, we have instruction that says, okay, how do we make sure we don't do that? First of all, then we see, do, do not compromise doctrine. Do not water down the truth. Do not cut corners or soften what the scripture is clear about. Twice in these two verses, it speaks about teaching. It speaks about doctrine. It speaks about instruction. He says, he says, a few things I have against you. He says, there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. They believe this teaching. And then verse 15. Also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now look, this doesn't mean the entire church held to this. But here's the problem. They were tolerating that there was a watering down, a downgrade of the doctrine that was meant to be taught. This is the, this is the issue. They, they were tolerating it. 
And so this, this teaching, what is this teaching? Well, the teaching of Balaam is when he gives counsel to the king of Balak, who originally, he wanted Balaam to pronounce a prophecy over Israel that would condemn Israel, and, and Balaam couldn't do that. But you know what Balaam did? Balaam instructed Balak. I know this is a lot of words. He instructed him to lure Israel away from faithful worship of the one true God. He said, you, you can't conquer them. You can't go against them in force. We can't twist God's arm to destroy them. We can't manipulate the other pagan gods because there's no God that's greater than the one true God. And so here's what you do. You tempt them with advice and wrong teaching. And then we, you get passages like Numbers 31, 16 describes exactly this happening. It says, Behold, these, Israel, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Here's what we know. Balaam had teaching that was contrary to God's revelation. And then it talks about the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, we, we don't know anything really about the Nicolaitans. We have conjecture. I shared some of that a few weeks ago. We have some conjecture, but we don't know anything about them. But here's what we know. Chapter 2, verse 6, they had evil works. Now, chapter 2, verse 15, they had evil words. They, they had false teaching and false behavior. And we learn Jesus condemns this. This means that we we must make sure we do not compromise the word of God. Do you know what the very first, the very first temptation really was? If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. There's been no sin yet. Everything is perfect there in the garden with every need they have met. And the serpent, Satan in disguise, he comes and he tests them. And you know what he says? Did God really say? This is the original temptation. The original temptation is the repeated temptation. It's the continued temptation. It's the temptation we face every day where we stand and we say, did God really say? The temptation in our culture is is for us to look at the, the one true way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we live in a world that wants to water that down and says, you know what? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what your belief we live in a world that says, you know what, all, all roads lead to heaven. As long as you're a, a good person, God will be pleased with you. And so, you know what, we can be relative in, in our beliefs. And, you know, I'm okay with loving Jesus. And you can be okay loving whoever you want as a God. And as long as we're good people and we all believe something sincerely, guess what? We're all going to go to heaven. That's just another repackaging of, did God really say it's the same story when it comes to temptation. We live in a world that wants to morally just say that, you know, everything's fair game. You live whatever life pleases you. As long as you're not hurting someone, you can be just fine doing whatever it is you want, even though the scripture gives clear instructions to the opposite. And you know what they're really saying? Did God really say? Church, Jesus he is condemning the compromise of this church. Would Jesus say that to us? Would he look at us and say, you know what, I have something against you. You hold to false doctrine. Oh, you know what, but we sing this song. It's the most popular song on the radio, and it's, it makes me feel so good. But what does it teach? Oh, you know what, this, this Bible study we just got, it's a, it's a great Bible study, and it's by a really popular author. And you know what, it's just, it's really entertaining to work through it also, and the videos with this Bible study are great. But does it hold to God's word? We, we need to be careful not to compromise in our doctrine. But not just doctrine. Secondly, do, do not compromise in devotion. False doctrine often leads to corrupt character. <laughs> It's just reality in life. Bad doctrine almost always leads to a bad living. But, but guess what? Good doctrine does not mean you get a pass. 
Even if you have perfect doctrine, which I don't know if anyone in this room does. I certainly don't. We're all growing. We're all learning. Every time we open the word, we're corrected. But, but even if you have great doctrine, you still have a battle in the way you live your life morally before the Lord. See, we, we forget this. We often want to carry, around, carry about our lives like we have somehow made peace with the flesh. Like, like somehow our temptations are gone and we are a great Christian and we don't have any temptations whatsoever. But that's not how it works. The reality is the enemies of your soul, your flesh, the devil, and this world, they are at war with you and they have a take no prisoners motto. They, they have no intention on going soft on you. They have no intention on going easy on you. Your fleshly desires want to kill you. Your, your, your sinful desires want to kill you. Let me show you what I mean. We, we have an enemy, and he has a strategy. He, ha, he has lots of different ways he approaches the strategy. But his strategy, if we look at Revelation 2, 14 and 15, we see in his strategy, verse 14, his strategy is, first of all, is to get you stumbling in what's called idolatry. He wants you to stumble in idolatry. Idolatry is simply when you worship, love, trust something more than you worship, love, or trust God. When there's something that has a greater affection in your life or something that has a greater allegiance in your life. There's something that you love more or that you're more loyal to. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 14. It says that Balaam instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. Now you read this and you say, wait, Mike, there's no way I'm eating food sacrificed to idols. First of all, that's just really weird, right? That's not part of our cultural mindset. For them, in idol, idol worship, it was turning their attention away from worshiping the one true God and then turning their attention so that they were worshiping the, the pantheon of pagan gods, that they would give honor or, or allegiance to these other pagan gods, even if it was just partial. So you know what? I'm 50% team God and 50% team Molech, right? Like that's the mindset they would have. What is it for us though? We don't have idols that we bow down to or statues, but, but I think we have idolatry just the same. I, I think about our idolatry usually in three categories. The first category is the idolatry of satisfaction. What is it that really satisfies you? What gets you more excited than anything else in life? There's all sorts of this, and it can be different for everyone in this room. Let me give you a few ideas. What about the satisfaction of binge-watching the latest TV show? Or, or playing hours on end the latest video game? Or being involved in a sport as a fan or as a participant so that it consumes great portions of your life? What about being an outdoorsman and hiking and hunting and fishing? Or what about the satisfaction you get from your job and being great at it? Listen, most of these things that I just listed are not bad things. You could argue some of them are, but most of these things are not bad things. But when you have your heart set on that as your greatest satisfaction instead of having your heart set on the Lord, you're stumbling on an idol. You're stumbling on an idol. Satisfaction isn't the only one. What about security? Security, the idol of security looks like a few different things. Security can be how much do you have in savings? How, how, how plush is your 401k? Are, are you able to say, I am secure because I'm financially secure? Or maybe it's not your savings account. Maybe it's how much food storage you have and how much prepping work you've done and how many cases of ammo you have stocked up. And you're like, you know what? If the apocalypse happens tomorrow, I am locked and loaded, ready to go. And your security is in yourself. Instead of Trusting in the one true God no matter what happens in this world. Now, is it bad to store stuff? Is it bad to have savings? No, no, no. Listen, I'm not saying that's, that's bad. Here's what I'm saying. Where is your ultimate security found? Is your ultimate security found in the sovereign God who providentially cares for his people, even if it's not how we would like? If it's not, guess what? You might be stumbling over an idol. Let me give you one more. 
What about the idol of salvation? You say, Mike, that's a Christian word. How can that be, how can that be an idol, the idol of salvation? Well, he, he, let, me, let me press you a little bit. How often does your mind go to, if only this political thing would happen, then our country would be fixed and everything would be better, everything would be saved? If only so-and-so were in office, if only so-and-so were our governor or our, our mayor or our president, if only the political system worked this way, well, then all of a sudden everything would be fixed and everything would be fine. And because we watch hours on end of, of whatever new station is your taste or your choice and you fill your mind with whatever's going on politically, before long, you have placed your hope of salvation ultimately in a political system that at its very core is broken. And it's weak compared to the God who is almighty. But let me press this even a little bit further into the salvation that we often find we seek after, which I'll say is the salvation of works. Sometimes I have a conversation with people, people in church. And in the course of the conversation, you guys have heard me say this before. In the course of a conversation, I'll say, so if you were to die right now, did you go to heaven? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, of course I would go. Why would, why would Christ let you in heaven? And I hear this kind of answer all the time. Well, you know how much I've turned my life around and you see all these good things I do for Jesus? You know how much I love Jesus? How much I serve him? You know, how often I come to church? Or You know what? I used to be this kind of a person, but now I'm this kind of person. And I think because I've, I've fixed things up, then, then you know, Jesus would love me and he would let me in. Sounds like a good answer, huh? I hear that and my heart sinks. Because the Bible is abundantly clear that you cannot be good enough. You cannot do a good enough good things. You can't be moral enough. You can't avoid sin enough so that you can be saved based on your own work, your own merit, your own righteousness. The Bible is clear that there is one way and only one way. It's by recognizing that you are a sinner, that you and I are wicked and we are in desperate need of help. And it's a help of something we cannot accomplish on our own, but it was a accomplished perfectly through Jesus and his sacrifice, through his death and through his victorious resurrection so that anyone and everyone who believes in him, who hopes in him, I like to put it this way, who rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ will be saved. How would you have answered that question before I gave you the cheat sheet answer? Are you looking at your life and all the good you do and all the hard work you do and all the ways you serve the Lord, are you looking at that as your merit that will get you into heaven? You know if you are what's happened is the enemy has made you fall, stumble head over heels one of the most dangerous stumbling blocks there is. This is his strategy. The enemy wants to get you stumbling in idolatry. But, but there's a second part to this strategy. He also wants to get you stumbling in sexual sin. Look at the end of verse 14. It says, put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might practice sexual immorality. This is just a broad term, sexual immorality. What is it? It's anything that is sexual activity that is not between a husband and a wife in the covenant bonds of marriage. This broad stroke, it uncovers everything from, from being unmarried to sexual act and sexually active to being married to someone and then sexually active with someone else. It involves everything from homosexuality to pornography. It involves the long look as someone attractive walks by and your eyes follow them across the room. And the enemy loves to get us trapped in that. You know, you know why? It's because it's so easy. God made us sexual beings. He, he made us for the intimacy of marriage. But the enemy twists and perverts and distorts it. The enemy works against us so that we forget that it's a good gift and we start to think it's something that we, we can get our hands on in whatever way we want to. And you know what this is? This is a great stumbling block. So what is our response? 
Our response is twofold. First, I would say, as a believer in Christ, is to make war against your flesh. Romans 8, 13, it says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will, say it with me, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's to make war. It's to not let up. It's to, to continually be vigilant in your guarding yourself by the power of God's spirit to make sure that the, the flesh is not killing you. Jonathan Owen, Owen, Jonathan Owen a Puritan, he, he, says, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's just a great way to summarize it. You're always on the battlefield. You're always making war. You're always having to deal with the onslaught of attack of your flesh. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the first aspect. But, but the next aspect, verse 16, Christ commands his church to repent. And I'm just gonna be honest. I'm not gonna get to the very end of this, but, but here's where I wanna land. Christ commands his church to repent, both individuals and the whole church. Now, when we talk about repentance, I got four fast statements. I'm going to give them to you pretty quickly. So if you're a note taker, get your fingers ready. When we talk about repentance, we talk about, first of all, repentance is turning away from sin in faith, and repentance is turning toward Christ in faith. Twofold. It's turning away from sin in faith, and it's turning toward Christ in faith. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, repent. When he talks about repent, the idea is you are pursuing one direction. You are walking towards sin. You're running towards sin. You're living a life that's embracing sin, that's, that's nurturing sin, whatever it looks like. Maybe it's obvious or maybe it's hidden, but your life is connected to it. And when you repent, you turn away from it 180 degrees, and you don't turn toward an unidentified object. You turn toward Christ. You realize that Christ is more valuable than your sin, that Christ is more wonderful than your sin, that Christ is more worthy than your sin, and you set your eyes upon him. This is repentance. It's turning away from our sin, not turning toward ourselves. <sighs> I'm a moral person. I got it all figured out. No, no, it's turning toward Christ. The second two statements. Repentance is turning, a turning of the mind and a turning of the heart. The word repentance can literally mean to change your mind. It's no longer thinking good about this. It's thinking this is terrible. And you change your mind so you think that Jesus, Jesus is amazing. But it's also a changing of the heart. Listen very carefully. One of the worst repentances that I, I witness from time to time is what I'll call the forced repentance. It's when your sin catches up to you and you get caught. And because you get caught, you have to repent. It's painful to watch that. Because we're never really certain if you really are trying to turn from your sin or you're really just trying to cover up what you've done wrong. Real repentance is when you bring it forward. You say, I am so sick of my sin. I hate it. I want nothing to do with it. I want to leave it so far behind me and I want to run so fast toward Christ that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. It's where you lay your life bare before a brother or sister in Christ that you trust. You say, here is my mess. I'm turning from my sin. Will you help? It's a repentance of the heart. You think differently, and your heart is set on something completely different. Here's the last sentence, though. Unrepentance is a serious matter. Look at verse 16 again. Look at Jesus' words. He says, therefore repent. If not, this is not what we often picture when we think about Christ. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is not a threat. This is a promise. It seems kind of terrifying, but this is a wonderful promise. 
Jesus says to the unrepentant, the one who is continuing in idolatry, the one who is continuing in their compromised teaching, the one who is continuing in their sexual sin, Jesus says, I will come to you and I will make war against you. And we say, I don't want Jesus to make war against me. But listen, he is not coming to make war against you to destroy you. He is coming to make war against you in your sin so he can deliver you. He doesn't want his brother or sister who he has bought with his blood and rescued. He doesn't want you remaining stuck in your sin. Now, when he comes and makes war against you, there's no promise it's going to be easy. Oftentimes, it's painful. Oftentimes, you suffer loss and you suffer pain in your unrepentance. It is a difficult process, but it is a process that's for your, for your good. And Jesus promises to do this. This is an act of his mercy. This is an act of his love. It's almost like a prisoner who's got, what is it called, Stockholm Syndrome, where they begin to identify with their captors. So when Jesus comes through that door to make war to free you, you begin to fight him. Not realizing you're actually fighting against yourself. He says this to the individual. I will make war against them, those who have not repented of their sin. But look, he actually tells this whole church to repent. He says, therefore, repent. Second person singular uh, imperative. You as a church, as a united being, repent. This is, I'm just gonna sit here for one minute longer. This is really important for us as a church, Valley. It is so hard to deal with sin in church. When, when there is sin in the church, you know what we usually want to do? Sin's over here, and so we go like this. And then every once in a while, we peek to see if it's gone. Oh, it hasn't gone away. Wait. And we hope it goes away. And we, we want to bury it. We want to sweep it under the rug. We want to ignore it. We want to avoid it. But listen, the Bible doesn't call us to avoid and ignore sin in the church. Jesus, he calls us to repent from our compromised teaching from a compromised doctrine and our compromised devotion. He calls us to deal with it. Jesus' words, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus gives clear instructions on how we deal with sin. You could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. We are given instruction on how to deal with someone who is unrepentant in their sin and even removing them from fellowship. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it talks about doing this with a, with a spirit of gentleness and an aim of restoration. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it talks about when the person who has been set outside the church for lack of repentance, when they repent, it says that we are to embrace them and welcome them back into the church family. You want to know what my least favorite thing to deal with in the church is? Sin. There is zero joy in it. It's not fun. It is not something that pleases anyone in leadership. So why do we do it? Why don't we just ignore it and make it easy so that everyone, it's it's all good. Why, Why do we do it? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, church, Jesus is calling us, he's calling you to enter into the battle for truth. He is calling you to do that. But listen, you can't do that if you have not repented. You can't do that if you're harboring hidden sin, if you're, if you're nursing whatever your favorite sin is. You and I today, this is a call not just to get into the battle. This is a call to repent. It's a call to repent. Why don't you bow your head right now? Why don't you take this next moment, you and the Lord, why don't you meet with him in secret, you and him right now. He knows your heart. He sees the very core of who you are. He knows everything going on inside of you. Take this moment right now, and if there's anything, anything in what you believe that you know you shouldn't believe, anything in how you act, you take this moment and repent. Turn away from your sin toward him mind and heart, and then let's enter the battle together.